Good afternoon. I'm Shelby Herbert, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Tuesday, January 31st. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced yesterday that it is effectively killing the controversial Pebble Mine Project. The Pebble Deposit contains a vast store of copper, gold, and molybdenum. The EPA says the mine would cause too much damage to habitat for the world's largest remaining wild salmon runs. KDLG's Izzy Ross reports. This is a decision that some Bristol Bay tribes have pushed the EPA to take for 13 years. United Tribes of Bristol Bay Executive Director Alana Hurley says it's historic. Many of those who began this battle are no longer with us. New generations of our people have been born and raised with the cloud of pebble hanging overhead. But our ancestral responsibility to safeguard our watershed and fishery has united all of us in our work to defend the world's last great wild salmon fishery. The EPA is exercising its rarely used veto authority under Section 404C of the Clean Water Act to prohibit mining the pebble deposit. This is just the third time in the past 30 years that the federal agency has used that authority. Hurley thanked the Biden administration multiple times during an EPA news conference. She pointed to the administration's nation-to-nation discussions with the region's tribes and said the federal government consulted with them when the state government would not. She also said tribes will continue their efforts to protect the region. Our work will not be done until every inch of our traditional homelands are protected, and EPA's action today helps us build that future where our people can remain Yubik-Dena'ina and Alutak for generations to come. The Pebble Company had proposed building an open-pit copper and gold mine about 17 miles from Iliamna Lake. The EPA says the mine's harm to salmon habitat would be unacceptable. It would damage or destroy 100 miles of streams that support spawning and breeding. It would also damage over 2,000 acres of surrounding wetlands. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers denied Pebble a federal permit two years ago, but the mining company is appealing that decision. Pebble CEO John Shively said in a written response that the EPA's use of its Clean Water Act authority during the appeal process is, quote, unlawful and unprecedented, and that it will likely result in legal action. The EPA's determination goes beyond banning Pebble's proposed project. It also bans future projects that would cause similar damage and restricts the discharge of mining materials in certain waters near the site. EPA Administrator Michael Regan said this decision is focused on the Pebble deposit. We know that this particular project would have adverse impacts uh, that would significantly impact uh, not only the industry, uh, but also impact uh, the, the ecosystem uh, and, and have a significant impact from a cultural standpoint as well. The EPA Office of Water Assistant Administrator Ridika Fox says the agency's decision means that the Army Corps cannot grant Pebbles appeal as proposed, but she says it does not ban every future project. It provides a roadmap for those types of projects that would create these adverse impacts but does not at all apply to um, other projects that could potentially be considered. Um, And it does not apply to any resource development, you know, uh, beyond this one in the state of Alaska. 
The EPA says the habitat around the pebble deposit supports the diversity of Bristol Bay's salmon and many other species, which in turn sustain the region's Alaska Native communities and support its sport and commercial fisheries. In Dillingham, I'm Izzy Ross. The Petersburg Vikings won Friday and Saturday's games over the Craig Panthers. The Viking varsity boys team also defeated the Panthers twice in their match two weeks ago. But Craig didn't go down easy this weekend. Rick Brock, who coaches the boy, the boys team, explains. On Friday, we actually started out a little bit slow, and uh, I don't know why we weren't very intense at the beginning of the game. So we were behind at the end of the first quarter, 11 to 10. And that county carried till about halfway through the second quarter, and we started playing better. Ended up with a, an eight-point lead at halftime, and then had a really good third quarter, outscored them 17 to 3, and then kind of played even from there. So we ended up winning 59 to 38. Kyle Biggers had 27 points. He had 21 of those 27 in the second and third quarter. Played really well. And our guards did a great job of getting him the basketball in, in scoring position. He got himself in a good spot. And then I really felt that all of the guard play that we had for the weekend did a really nice job of getting us into our sets. So, um, yeah, a good good start to the weekend. And then uh, Saturday, we kind of talked about the fact that anytime you have a high-scoring game like that, the other team will change their defensive philosophy. And Kyle ended up with 10 points, but he had two or three guys around him for most of the evening. So our other post. Jack Ingle was in foul trouble most of the game on Friday, and uh, he ended up having a good game on Saturday, ended up with 18 points. And another big key for us on Saturday was our outside shooting. We ended up uh, with some key threes throughout the ball game because Craig was packing a key on us, and we were able to hit some critical shots to when we needed the lead. Our first half defense, we held Craig to 10 points in the first half on Saturday. So we had a nice cushion there at the beginning, 28 to 10, and uh, really kind of played again even throughout the second half. But uh, real happy with our defense. They've got a couple of guys that can shoot the ball real well and penetrate and stuff. And so uh, holding them to 10 points, I thought was very good. Last week, some varsity players were out sick or had injuries. The team is still recovering their numbers, and Coach Rick says they're getting back into fighting shape to face off against Metlakatla in two weeks. The varsity Lady Vikings lost to the Craig Lady Panthers on Friday. That was 19-54. Saturday was a tighter game. They lost 23-44. to Dino Brock coaches the Lady Vikings. Though his team ultimately lost both games, he said they managed to turn, around, turn it around in the second half of their last game. Um, the varsity games, lots of growth, lots of good things. We started out talking about trying to be more consistent offensively, and through the first three quarters Friday, I thought that we did that. Saturday, our fourth quarter, we had some different lineups in, and so we weren't as consistent, but that we showed Friday that way was uh, was huge. And we came out Saturday, struggled a little bit to start with, but then we, when we got ourselves rolling, about three minutes to go left in the second quarter, we actually outscored Craig for the whole rest of the game, which was big for us. Played a great second half energy level defensively. Had a lot of people go like, that was the best half you guys have played. The growth we keep making every weekend is huge. That's what we want. That's what we've been talking about all season. Coach Dino says the team made improvements since their last game against the Lady Panthers two weekends ago.
He says the team has been practicing shooting, rotations, and defensive maneuvers. On Friday, the JV boys team beat Craig 47 to 27, and they, and then again on Saturday, 50 to 10. The JV girls lost both games to Craig, Friday 19 to 58, and Saturday 25 to 49. The varsity teams will be on break this weekend while the JV Vikings compete in their multi-high school tournament here in Petersburg. Two public hearings were held last week on Wednesday and Thursday to gather input on a proposed state ferry terminal in the village of Saxman, about three miles south of downtown Ketchikan. The terminal would exclusively serve the state ferry Latuya as it makes its way back and forth between Metlakatla and Revilla Island. Officials say that the new terminal would shave time off the trip. Representatives from the region's Economic Development Group, Southeast Conference, as well as the state's Department of Transportation visited both communities to hear residents' ideas on the proposed plans. KRBD's Reagan Miller caught up with some of the attendees who shared their thoughts and concerns. Once the dust has settled, the Saxman Seaport will boast a Three Bears grocery store, an Ace Hardware, a boat launch, more than 70 parking spaces, loading lanes, and a ferry terminal. Right now, Ketchikan's ferry terminal is about six landmiles from Saxman Seaport. The trip between Ketchikan and Metlakatla takes about 45 minutes. Based on reports made during the public hearings, that time could be shaved to less than 20 minutes with the new seaport terminal. Trudy Swink knows what it's like to spend a lot of time at a ferry terminal. Her daughter, Crystal, played basketball for Ketchikan High School before graduating more than 10 years ago. It was me going to these terminals to drop off my kids. So our being stuck in them in other communities, too, as a parent with traveling with my child. So That's why she's worried that the proposed ferry ticketing building won't be big enough to accommodate waiting passengers. Engineers from the contracted firm P&D Engineering suggested a terminal that measured 24 by 36 feet. You know, I don't want something that's only going to hold 10 people. It's not going to do our visitors any good out here. Attendees also raised concern about not having enough space for school buses to pull through. Plans are for 126 vehicle parking spots, more than 20 additional spots for vehicles with boat trailers, and 500 feet of loading zone. Gabriella Blair says she's happy the idea is going somewhere after it was voted down a few years back because the city was being asked to sell its land for the development. But this time we're actually able to lease it and not sell our land. So our land's still going to be city of Saxman's, which that part is exciting. Blair says it seems like a small space for everything that's planned. I was just trying to look at, like, where buses would park, school buses, borough buses. It just seems hard to fit it all in that area and their terminal booths seem really small like it didn't seem like it could let people sit in there but i like the idea of the of that being a stop to go to met just trying to fit everything in there is a little hard jeremy bynum a ketchikan borough assembly member also attended the meeting speaking outside of that role bynum said the space is tight but he doesn't think that's a deal breaker for any of the designs I don't see that all of those activities are going to be happening all at once. So, for example, the ferry uh, being there and then boat launching and all of that, like sometimes it will be at once, but mostly I think that you'll see that spread out and uh, different times of the day. Um, so I don't, 
It looks tight on paper, but I think functionally it'll probably be fine. Chuck Denny is the vice chair of Cape Fox Corporation and the vice president of the organized village of Saxman. He thinks developing the seaport will give the city a much-needed boost. It'll be income for the city because right now the city isn't doing too well. And then with three bears, that'll be a, a big plus for our community. Denny is also a boat owner, so he says he likes that all three designs incorporate a new boat launch. Metlakatla Mayor Albert Smith says that more than 50 people turned out for the public meeting. Uh, I think there was uh, there was some concern about uh, transportation between Saxman and uh, Ketchikan. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's stuff that we could work out. Uh, there's there's a lot of discussion about possibilities on on how we could uh, get a shuttle running to all the main uh, places in in town. Smith says even more people filled out comment cards at the meeting. Metlakatla residents were also able to talk one-on-one with representatives from the Ferry Service, Southeast Conference, and the Department of Transportation. So it was just really good setup. Public comment period will be open until February 17th. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Juno artist Crystal Whirl and her brother Rico put Flingit Formline art on a lot of things, playing cards, clothes, umbrellas, and temporary tattoos. Rico was first a Flingit artist to be featured on a stamp, was the first Flingit artist to be featured on a stamp. Now it's Crystal's turn. A forever stamp with one of her Formline skateboard designs is coming out this spring. Yvonne Crumry reports from Juno. Juno artist Crystal Whirl says the Postal Service's art director was most drawn to her salmon designs, and she was fine with that. I'm always down to do a salmon. I'm from the Sukahari clan, the salmon sockeye clan, and so I'm glad people, it seems appropriate, you know, and I, I never get bored of, of drawing it in a different way. She says her brother's experience showed her the power of having Hlingit art on a stamp. In 2021, the Postal Service released his design of Raven bringing light to the world, holding the sparkly golden sun in his mouth. He kept receiving fan mail with the stamps on it because of the stamps, like postcards from all over um, using his stamp and just saying thank yous. And I thought that was really, really cool that that happened. She had to work in several art forms to arrive at the final design. Five different formline sketches of salmon, and then a digital piece with different color options. Finally, they sent her a skateboard, and she painted the salmon design on it. Whirl said it was cool they wanted the physical object painted. They could have used that digital design to superimpose over the artwork, but they wanted an original. The Postal Service then photographed the skateboard being held up by a model, and that picture is going on the stamps. Whirl has tackled big projects before, like her Native American Heritage Month design for Google, a massive mural in downtown Anchorage, and an ambulance that's driving around Juno every day. But she says that this is the first time she's worked with an organization that had little knowledge of formline art. I definitely had a challenging moment trying to uh, fulfill USPS's expectations of what they wanted of my art and my style. I just had to backtrack and like elaborate and explain the ABCs of formline design. She says she can't wait to see the stamps in person. Yeah, and it's always like a really satisfying thing when you spend all this time designing something and 
it's finally finished and you get to hold it in your hand and just like realize the extensive process you went through and communication you did with a collab and a team to get to this one tiny little sticker. <laughs> the stamp comes out in March. She's hoping to sell them at her and her brother's store. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Cremery. A small vacant lot in downtown Juneau is at the center of a dispute between the state of Alaska and the U.S. Department of the Interior. It's the latest development in a years-long effort by the Central Council of the Thlingit and Haida Indian tribes of Alaska to protect traditional lands. Katie Anastas reports from Juneau. Slingit and Haida President Chalkaish Richard Peterson recently signed a deed to place a small parcel of land into federal trust. It essentially creates Indian country, a small spot where tribal law would apply. The lot is less than 800 square feet. But Peterson says the decision is about more than just the land. It's about tribal sovereignty and self-determination. These lands were unlawfully and illegally taken through the years we've legally and lawfully try to get them back, and trying to protect them into perpetuity. The state of Alaska is challenging the decision, saying it undermines key terms of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act by creating a reservation. In a lawsuit filed Tuesday, the state says it, quote, jeopardizes the state's rights to tax and to enforce land use, natural resource management, environmental and public safety regulations on that trust land, unquote. Rules around whether Alaska Native tribes can put land into trust have changed with presidential administrations over the last several years. Under the Obama administration, Alaska Native tribes were allowed to submit applications for the first time since 1980. And in 2017, the Craig Tribal Association became the first Alaska Native tribe to have an application approved. But under the Trump administration, the Interior Department withdrew the revision. Then, under the Biden administration, the department issued a new solicitor's opinion, allowing land to be put into trust for Alaska Native tribes again. Peterson says this decision is in line with the latest opinion. The Craig application, which I applaud, should was the first. It should not be the last application to be approved. And now it's not. Ours is the second. The Central Council has four other applications pending. If the Interior Department approves them, a total of three and a half acres owned by the tribe would be put into trust. Peterson says having Indian country in Alaska opens up new federal funding opportunities. Tribal economic development bonds can only be spent on facilities within a reservation. That leaves Alaska Native tribes largely excluded from the program. He says the state has an opportunity to collaborate with tribes and move forward. The state isn't hurt by our sovereignty, and there's countless states in the union that thrive and prosper right alongside their tribes. Peterson says the state's lawsuit is setting the relationship between the state and tribes back. This endangers all applications for future land of trust for all tribes, not just Juneau, not just an urban center, but all of the rural applications. The Interior Department also has pending applications from the Ninilchuk Traditional Council and the native village of Fort Yukon. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Three tribal entities in Alaska will receive Indian Health Service land from the federal government. 
President Joe Biden signed a bill in December authoring the land transfers to the Tanana Tribal Council, the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium, or SEARCH, and the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. The Tanana Tribal Council will receive a former Indian Health Service hospital site in Tanana. Search will get the two remaining federally owned properties within its health campus in Sitka. It's been a lingering step in their hospital expansion plan. And THC has already already has a warehouse on the land they'll receive in Anchorage. They use that warehouse to prepare for construction projects throughout Alaska, including water treatment improvements. An official with the organization said owning the land will make building a new, larger warehouse a simpler process. The late Representative Don Don Young first introduced a bill authorizing the transfers in January 2021. It has since been named after him. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert. Coming up, local and marine weather...